Hello, my name's Alex Clark, and this is the Cambridge Literary Festival podcast. Now, as some of you will know, we recently had a listening festival at which we talked to all sorts of people and streamed all sorts of live events. And I was very fortunate to chat to Marion Keys about, among many other things, which include a praying bus, um, the etiquette of Zoom calls during lockdown, what lipstick's the best thing to use to give yourself a cheer up, her new book, The Chart-Topping Grown-Ups. And I did wonder whether the family at the heart of it, the Casey's, would be very good in lockdown. I suspected not. Oh God, you're so right. I mean, the eldest, Jessie, who is, you know, a control freak at the best of times, she would be those type of people who think that the rules don't apply to her. I am absolutely certain of it. And this saddens me, but I do think she would have been one of those people who got into her car and went to her holiday home for the weekend. And I do feel that she wouldn't actually feel that she was doing anything wrong, like that she would know that she was being safe and that the rules were only for those people who couldn't really be relied upon to do the right thing. It's so funny. Over the weekend here in Ireland, the police were stopping people who, because we're only allowed to travel within two kilometres of our home. And I live in Dunleary, which is a fairly ordinary town, but we are quite near the fancy town of Glasthool that has a very, very glamorous grocery shop called Caveston's that sells Induja sausage and a chore powder and, you know, peculiar vegetables, like exotic ones. And the guardia, the, the guards here in Ireland, the police, stopped various people in Dunleary. And a kind of a high proportion of them said that they had, they needed to get to Caveston's. Instead of the guards saying, I'm sorry, you're outside your two kilometres, they seemed to kind of get caught up into the whole, Jesus, people really do need to go to Caveston's for their Indusia sausage and their, and their venison and, and, and their, you know, and their exotic fish. And they were like, well, okay, okay, go and get your, your magical ingredients, but then you must come home. I really feel that Jessie would be totally one of those people, that she would be like, Jesus Christ, we cannot have the dinner without the garam masala salama that has been, you know, especially imported from Burma or somewhere. You know, it's been none of the ordinary stuff. So Jessie would be very bad at it. Cara, who is another wife in, in the book, I mean, I just think she's a sort of a, a very, you know, she's an obedient person. She might do what she's told. Uh, but then Nell, who is the youngest one, who is a kind of, um, she's a millennial who cares about the planet and who, who is very moral, I suppose. I think that she would feel that because her values are sort of counter to the mainstream, that she could sort of do what she wanted as well. The cases would be actually a nightmare. And because there's so many of them, like, you know, Jessie has five children, like them and her and Johnny in the house. And they're like a huge range of ages. It, it could turn ugly. It could. <laughs> well, I think, you see, I've been thinking about what they might do. And that is a perfect encapsulation. I think you're right. Jessie would be probably be the worst. The cases are such a brilliant family and it's thank you Alex they're just wonderful and they're so we get so into their various stories and we're at times rooting for one and against another and then oh god that person we like does something really questionable and now there's a row with so and so you've written families before but you've never written this great big 
family ensemble in quite this sort of way, have you? Why did you? What happened? Thank you, Alex. Yeah, I have written families before. I mean, the Walsh family is the one I'm kind of known about. But in a way that they're quite episodic because I'm in each book I write about one particular sister, where this was very much an ensemble piece. And maybe unusually for me, like four of my main characters are men. And I really put a huge amount of work into kind of fully realizing them as much as I do my female characters. And it was a lot of things. I mean, I think it's the age I am that I felt, I felt ready to tackle kind of a much bigger cast of characters. And, and also in a weird way, it's because of the way I am with my feminism at the moment that I'm very aware that sexism as it is damages men almost as much as it damages women. You know, I'm looking around at our society and I see men who have been squashed into this incredibly unforgiving template of how to be a man. And I think the patriarchy in conjunction with late stage capitalism treats men brutally. You know, it says you, you have to earn the money. You have to be the strong one. You have to be the one who kind of leads the family. You can never show weakness. You can't cry and you can't step back from something and say, I'm not able for it. And I'm kind of watching the men around me and I'm looking at things like the stats for like male suicide. And I wanted to write sympathetically about men. And, you know, I've got men aged from 49 to 22 in grown-ups and they were all at different stages in their lives and I mean they're they're individuals and they have all been shaped by their unique experience and I I really enjoyed the challenge of it and I felt that it was it was appropriate for the way I feel now and for the way the world is now to do that so that was one of the many inspirations mm. I mean I love families. I mean, I talk a lot about how, how close I am to my own family. And the thing that kind of I like the most is that we are all fairly different. There's a lot of big personalities, but diverse ones. And I think that if we weren't related to each other, that we probably wouldn't get on <laughs> in real life. And I mean, it's not even like we always get on in the family but there is that thing of like yes we travel mob handed we are very much a cohesive group whether we agree or not that that is the one thing that we will all agree on that we are our mob we are our gang and i find the juxtaposition of very different characters or personality types I find that endlessly engaging like it's gas and it's great because you know i think like most people I surround myself with people I like who think the same as me. You know, we are all in our little echo chambers and I think we don't do it kind of consciously, but like I would not gravitate towards people, you know, who think Boris Johnson is the bee's knees. I simply wouldn't because my value system is very different to people who do like him. But within my family, I'm not saying that people think Boris Johnson is the bee's knees, but there are different different ways of thinking and I think that can only be good really for anyone it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable to listen to people strongly believe in things that I'm opposed to but it's good it's actually good ultimately and you have that sort of safety net as you say you're all in that yeah. family you travel through life more pandered um yeah of course what the other almost kind of structural advantage of families 
is you can do these wonderful set pieces and grown-ups is kind of organized that way Jeez. and we should perhaps say a little bit about the the sort of book ending of it the device that sparks it into life which is the big nightmare of somebody <gasps> telling the truth in a family yes so the cases are three brothers and their various wives ex-wives adult stepchildren and because of Jessie the controlling one who would have gone to Caveston's to get the um to get the Indusia sausage she really loves the whole idea of this kind of big, messy, but cohesive family. And she organizes a lot of, of fabulous events. Like the first one is they all go away for Easter to a lovely hotel in Kerry. But the book begins at Johnny's birthday party. He, he's, he's the eldest brother. And on the surface, the, everybody gets on really well. But obviously, underneath the surface, things are different because they're humans. And some of them actually don't get on at all. And others get on really far too well. But that kind of never breaks the surface until this particular birthday when everybody is there. And Cara, who is married to Ed, the second brother, she gets concussion. Now, this actually happened to somebody I know. She got concussion and suddenly she stopped being able to dissemble. She stopped being able to kind of do the white lies and the tactful stuff. And Cara says something at this birthday party that she knows about two of the other people there, a, a secret. And this kind of causes uproar. And then those people, to try and save their skin, try and throw Kara under the bus, and suddenly several secrets start spilling out in this kind of horrific mess. Now, the reader doesn't know what the actual secrets are. This is right at the start of the book, but you know it's terrible. And then the book jumps back six months earlier, to the Easter in Kerry, the book is written, as you say, episodically, like each fabulous social event, you know, one a month up to the present day, up to the party. And, and you see all the various alliances, the rows, the misunderstandings, like all the things that bring them to that fateful birthday party. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was a really fun book to write. I mean, it was challenging in terms of I suppose the vast character. Yeah, a lot of people. Yes, yeah. yeah. And because they're all important, like every storyline matters. But um, it has been wonderful. Like the whole publication of it, um, it has been just received so generously. And, and so many people have contacted me like over the last three or four weeks to say that reading grown-ups or listening to it being read was the one time that they were able to escape the current strangeness and I've always felt I don't know you know weird about what I do I mean it's very hard to kind of feel proud but I have felt proud that I've provided escape or, or, or happiness for for that short while so I'm really grateful to anyone who's bought the book or anyone who's read it and contacted me like it has been such such a wonderful time it really has been lovely the book has done amazingly well. I mean, it has just shot to the top of bestseller charts and it's because it is so thoroughly, thoroughly absorbing. Thank um, you. But, you know, whenever I talk to you about writing, you have this very healthy, I'm sure, kind of self-doubt. You know, is this one going to work? Is this going to be, will I be able to tell this story? Now, I have to say, Mammy Keys never had this doubt, did she? 
about me no no, no she didn't she didn't she didn't now will i tell my story yes. about how mammy keys made that it was my unsubtle okay. way of asking you to tell okay. your story okay okay i would now this is a long story, so have your cup of tea ready. Right. I didn't start writing until I was 30. And I only started writing as a response to the fact that my life was crashing and burning. I was at the tail end of alcoholic drinking when I started writing short stories. And I came from a family where it just wouldn't occur to you in a million years to be a writer. Like my poor dad was all about, you know, a steady job, permanent and pensionable. They were his kind of watchwords. Like, like he just wanted all of us to be safe. And the idea of having a career as a, as a writer was just like ludicrous. So my life was shutting down. I started writing short stories. I went to rehab four months after I started writing. And then I got sober. And I went back to London. I did rehab in Ireland, went back to London, sent the short stories off to a publisher, sent a letter saying that I had written part of a novel, which I hadn't. And I never intended to do so because I just thought short stories are lovely because I mean, the clue is in the name. They're short. You can write one in half a day and then you show it to everyone and you get all the praise and it's lovely. And I thought like, if you're writing a novel, I mean, I had no real idea how long it would take, but long, you know, the, the number I had in my head was nine months. I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, waiting for the praise on that one. I, I couldn't do it. Like I loved instant gratification. So at this stage, I was coming home to Ireland every month so that my poor parents could keep an eye on me to make sure that I hadn't relapsed in that. So, I mean, it was very early days. Like this was in the May of 1994 and I had only got sober in, in the January. And the particular weekend that I came home in the May Mammy Keys was going on a coach with all the other ladies from the locality. They were going on a coach to Knock in County Mayo. Now, for those of you who don't know what Knock is, Knock is, a, I suppose, a, a sacred site in, for uh, the Catholics where there was an apparition some night in the rain 150 years ago. There's a basilica and it's a place of pilgrimage, you know, and you go and you buy your crucifixes and your mother of pearl what are them things? Rosary beads. And, and so my mother used to go every year on the road with, with all the women. And, and I, I mean this, they would say the rosary all the way down. And then when they got to knock, they would go to confession. Then they would go to mass. Then they would, might have a ham sandwich, but they would probably be saying the prayers in their head, even when they're having a ham sandwich. Then they'd get back on the bus and then they'd say novenas all the way home. And this is the God's honest truth. And they used to pray for intentions. And at the time, now this was a long time ago, like this is 26 years ago, mothers used to pray a lot for their sons to get like jobs in the bank. Like that was kind of like, you know, we were just coming out of like the 80s, the recession, you know, jobs in the bank. It was like, oh my God, permanent and pensionable. So the sons for, to get the job in the bank and for the daughters to marry a man who had a job in the bank. So all the women would go with their special intentions. So I had got a letter back. That's what, yeah, I'd got a letter back from the publisher that I'd sent the lie to. I had written four chapters of my what eventually became my first book and sent it off and I was waiting to hear so when my mother heard this she was thinking oh Jesus this would be fabulous you know if she could get her her book published so she fully intended to pray her intention was going to be me but 
when she went up that morning, they, they left at seven, she started sort of bartering and horse trading with the other women. And she was saying, well, you know, my daughter is only out of rehab for alcoholism. She made a right to us over, absolutely mortified, but she's doing her best. Now, look, at, if you could park your prayers for your daughter this year and give your prayers to Marion getting her book published, I'll see you right next year. And then she would go to another woman and say, no, look, at, didn't I see you right? Didn't I stay up and do the, the eight night novena for you at that time when your son was looking for the such and such and it's payback time now you give all your knock prayers to marry and getting published and I don't know how many of them that she actually kind of harnessed she is so persuasive in in a very sort of meek way you know you'd be surprised so anyway they get on the bus they leave Dublin they're saying their prayers they've got their rosaries there you know hey and Mary Grace Lord is with thee and this was before the boom in Ireland. So we only had the crappy roads. So the, there were no bypasses. So the buses had to go through like Mullingarn, Longford, and Athlone, and they're whizzing across Ireland. And, you know, the people would be out like, you know, at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, like to buy their, their carrots or whatever. And the bus would go by and they'd hear like, um, our father Martin, mm, and they'd be like, Jesus, there goes the praying bus. And, uh, and they'd be standing and watching and you kind of hear like, the prayers and their wake, you know, the whole, the huge amount of holiness. So they prayed for me all the way down. Then they got to knock. Then they went to confession and they, they probably confessed sins that they hadn't even done just to get kind of extra absolution, just to harness to the energy. Then they had their ham sandwich. Oh, then they went to mass. Then they had their ham sandwich. Then they got on the bus and they did the novenas all the way home. Now, I can't remember the prayers of the novenas. Something about holy star, queen of the sea, something like that. But all the people who had been out buying their carrots at nine o'clock in the morning were now out buying their chips for their tea. So at about six o'clock, they'd be there in, you know, Mullingar and all of those towns. And the bus would go past again and they'd hear the prayers and they'd see the women kind of all devout. So eventually they get back to Dublin at about 11 o'clock at night. And I heard the bus and you could almost feel the energy like when the bus arrived home, kind of pulsating with holiness there at the end of the road. And I saw my mother coming up the drive and I could see her wavy form through, you know, that funnily wiggly glass that front doors had back then. So I came down the stairs and I opened the door and she stepped in and I said, well, mommy. And she goes, it's in the bag. And, and, Literally, I went back to London then on the Sunday evening and the fall, like later that week, I got a letter saying that they would publish my book and they would give me a three book contract. And Mammy Keys has been insufferable ever since. Yes. Insufferable. Because like, you know, people say, isn't it wonderful how well Marion has done? And she's like, well, of course, <laughs> she wasn't without help, you know, and, you know, she tries to be humble, but... She can't help it. And to look at, doesn't she deserve it? So yes, it's all thanks to Mammy Keys. She never doubted for a second that I would get published. I know that in a kind of another way, you have this connection with, with your mother and your writing. I mean, they're connected in your mind because her ability to tell a story and her ability to make narratives and juggle with the language is something that you feel she perhaps didn't have an outlet for in the everyday of her life. And I know it actually really means something to you that, you know, that yeah. connection. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that I have to be grateful to her for. Like she is like a natural storyteller. Like she's an incredibly gifted oral storyteller. And I remember like my teenage years, like that the kitchen was always full of people and 
she was so funny and really kind of really connected to other teenagers. Like people would come to meet her to see her rather than the rest of us. And there was kind of that atmosphere in the house that like you had to be good at telling stories. It was kind of our currency, you know, and it was really important to be funny. Like that, the kind of a real uh, premium was put on, on humor. And she has such a way with sayings like she's from County Clare and like she has incredible turns of phrase and a beautiful pronunciation and just very beautiful use of language. I was absorbing all of this without realizing that I was being educated in how to construct a narrative, how to hold stuff back, how to play out a line and give your listeners or your audience just enough information to intrigue them. When I began to write, I wrote in an oral way, you know, as if I was talking directly to the, to the reader. I mean, I wrote as, as if I was speaking and I was just really lucky that that struck a chord and that was what people responded to. The thing is, I think she would have been fabulous doing what, what I do. I think she would have been miles better than me. I mean, she has such insight into human beings, into their good and into their dark bits. Like she can sum up a person with one glance and in one sentence. I mean, she can be devastating. She just has never given the confidence to do it. Like, you know, she got married in 1962 and the law was in Ireland then that once you got married, you had to give up your job. Like you, you literally could not work because there's a clause in the Irish constitution and it's still there that the place of the woman is in the home, like providing support to the man. So it, was, it would have been illegal for her to continue with her work, but also there was an enormous set of sociological and, and cultural down on women being opinionated, of kind of sticking their head up above the parapet. I mean, women were controlled by the opinion of others. And that whole kind of Catholic church thing pervaded that a woman must be modest. And it would not have been modest for her to say, I would like to write a book. And she's very devout. Her faith means an awful lot to her. And it pains me. Like it, it actually gives me a sort of a, a horrible feeling in my stomach that she was denied this. Mm -hmm. And I feel very, very lucky that Ireland had changed enough that by the time I came of age that I felt I was allowed to do it. Talking about the writing that you've done in the quarter of a century now, and when we come to this book and throughout the books, you've, you've managed to bring together this kind of idea of bringing people into a very absorbing story via character and dialogue and these interesting settings and the pacing of the novels, but also having this consistently serious kind of underpinning to it. And thinking about what you were saying about the place of women and the extent to which that's changed, such that in Ireland that, that part of the constitution won't survive for very much longer, we don't think. You know, you no. must be in the home. But in this book, you, you address an awful lot of very serious things. Addiction, the way that Ireland treats its refugees, the relationships between men and women, as you say, the way that a lack of feminism and unequal society affects men as well as women. How have you managed to kind of keep this, the lightness of touch and tone with this oh, matter? I mean, thank you, Alex. I mean, I've never seen the point of writing a book if it doesn't have something serious at its heart. And because I write about, you know, contemporary human beings, I mean, mostly contemporary women, I mean, it seems absolutely appropriate to acknowledge 
the things that cause us pain, whether it's something like addiction or whether it's knowing that we live in a time of, you know, incredibly unequal income um, and kind of the pain that it feels to live in a country where, where you know people are waking up hungry. I mean, I find that intensely painful. And I think that I can be that person who finds it intensely painful, as well as being a person who loves nail varnish, who loves telly, who is interested in politics, like who loves having fun with my niece. I think it is possible to be, you know, an entirely rounded person with all of those things going on. I don't, I don't think that people are, you know, either frivolous or serious. I think we're usually a mix of them all. And it seems appropriate that if I can live with both of those parts in me, I mean, again, it comes back to my mother. And it's also a very Irish thing of like, we laugh at our misfortunes or rather we use humor to make our misfortunes bearable. The one thing I would say about that is as a writer writing about something you know, very serious, like, you know, how, how Ireland treats its refugees or how, how anyone in the Western world treats their refugees. It is only appropriate to use humour or lightness when it is not being in any way disrespectful of the plight of refugees. I think I'm known for sort of writing comic novels, but that has to be used carefully. You know, making people laugh cannot be the first aim the most important thing is to honor the lives of the vulnerable people that I'm writing about. And I mean, that can take a certain amount of finessing, but I feel again, it's something that most Irish people would say that it comes, that kind of melancholic humor thing seems to be a national characteristic. And maybe it's not just Irish. I mean, I find, you know, my Jewish friends are very similar, you know, of that kind of, um, you can do both. You can acknowledge the pain of being alive and you can also smile at it almost. So yeah, it takes a certain amount of work, but it's not a huge amount. I mean, to be honest, the hard thing for me would be to, to write with no humor. Yeah. I mean, I would feel incredibly uncomfortable doing that. I would feel dishonest and I would feel that the book was actually very one-sided. I suppose I found my, my tone and Maybe it shows a lack of ambition, but I, I like what I do and I, I don't want to do anything different. I know a lot of people are kind of like, oh, I want to try different things and I want to be a different kind of writer and I want to improve and I want to evolve. And I don't, you know, I, spent my, <laughs> like, I don't. I spent my entire life wanting to be different to the way I am. And it just feels lovely to sit here today and think, you know what? I like a lot of what I do. I like a lot of my values. And maybe it's unfashionable to not have more ambition, but who cares? It's my life. And I don't know, maybe that might help other people. If you have found something that you love about your life, embrace it rather than thinking, oh, Jesus, I'm obliged to change it. It's our life. We make the rules for our life. Um, so don't change it if you don't want to. And there's no harm in being proud or being pleased if something about the way you live or who you are gives you pleasure. Marion, I know that one of the things that you've been toying with in writing is perhaps having a little revisit of one of your earlier characters, very, very popular uh, family yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? I can. I can, Alex. Right. I have 
always said that I don't believe in sequels. For me, I just, I, I've never understood. I, I felt by the time I got to, to the end of the book, my characters had gone through enough that it was only fair to leave them in peace, to live out, you know, a peaceful existence for the rest of their life. I, I was always felt in a way that it was sort of like cheating the reader. Anyway, and I've also experienced that thing of, you know, if you've really loved a book, really loved it, and think, oh my God, I just want to read about these people forever. And then the writer writes a sequel and the sequel just doesn't make you feel the same. And then there's that awful thing where A, you dislike the sequel and B, you're looking at the original one. You're thinking, Jesus, I'm not so sure it was that good after all. And it ruins everything. But I, well, first of all, I tried to write a sequel to Watermelon about four or five years ago. I wanted to write about Adam and Claire taking a break. And I put about six months work into it. And I just, I couldn't do it for various reasons. I had to kind of junk all the work I'd done. And then I changed it into The Break, which is about entirely new characters, Amy and Luke. And I thought, well, that's, you know, there's no way I'll be able to revisit the watch characters now because I've tried. And then when I finished writing um, Grown Ups, there's always that awful feeling whenever I finish a book that, that's it, I'm all used up. No more books. I've got nothing. I'm a dried husk. I'm a, you know, torn docket, a busted flush. I'll have to go back and train to be a nail technician. And actually, I wouldn't mind that. And for some reason, I started thinking about Rachel um, from Rachel's Holiday. And I, it wouldn't go away. And I have huge anxieties about revisiting the book because it's a book that has meant a lot to an awful lot of people. Mm. And people have got different things from it. Like some people have just enjoyed the humor and, and have, you know, have laughed a lot. But other people have either got sober from it or clean or else somebody belonging to them, like a parent or a spouse, had addiction problems and through reading the book they were able to sort of to forgive their spouse or to understand them better and of all my books it seems to be the one that matters most to people that people have kind of taken to their heart in a way there's huge fear about me wading in and going write them let's throw it all up in the air and see what happens because if it doesn't work it's going to upset people so but anyway i have started it and i feel like i know I know the story. I am writing it. I mean, at the moment, my, the imaginative side of my head is like pathetic. You know, like I can write about 16 words a day. Like it's, and it is really like getting blood out of a turnip. But I'm committed to it. Now, if it gets to a certain point and I think, no, no, I'm just going to disappoint people, then I will walk away. Yeah. But at the moment, it's slow. But... It feels different to the time when I tried to write Adam and Claire. I am more in her. I couldn't really connect with Claire, whereas I am connecting with Rachel. And so we'll see. And I really hope I can do it justice. And I really hope I don't let people down. And the thing is, I've also learned this, that like, no matter how hard I try, and no matter how pleased that I might be, there will always be people that it just doesn't work for. You know, they're not being capricious and they're not being difficult. It's simply... It's just not going to work. Maeve Binchy once said that a reader always wants you to be the way you were when they first found you. And I completely understand what she means, that when a person, you know, I read a book and I love it, right? And I'm feeling the dopamine and the happy chemicals in my head. And so when I read another book by this author, I'm expecting to feel those same feelings. And it may not work because 
I'm different. The author is different. The book is different. And sometimes it works, but a lot of the time it doesn't, or it might work in a different way. You get different happy feelings. And I'm trying not to let myself be sort of crippled by the fear of disappointing people because undeniably there will be, but maybe more, more people would be happy. And ultimately I can only really use myself as a yardstick. And I know that sounds arrogant and I don't mean it to be. I think the only way that I can serve my readers is to ask myself, would I read this book? If I hadn't written it, would I find it interesting? Would I believe it? Would I care about them? That's, it's really the only yardstick that works because if you're thinking, well, that person didn't like that thing in the last one, but they like that thing, right? I must leave out that thing. I must incorporate that thing. You just drive yourself mad. It's like, like by committee, can you? Committee, exactly. Readers in your head. Yeah, and yeah. it's just not healthy. So that's kind of where I am. And uh, I will do my best because Jesus, that's all. That's all I've ever been able to do. And, you know, fingers crossed. Well, Marion, we wish you all the luck with it. And, and all the kind of strength that it, it you'll need to, to bring it. And we will not hold anything against you. And we will understand if you walk away from it totally. Just do what feels right to you. Um, in the moment before I let you go, uh, I know that you're also doing marvellous things to get locked down. I'm loving your World Cup of Lipsticks. Thank you. Um, I, I find myself so, well, I don't know. I don't know, Charlotte Tilbury. I know. I don't know. I can't junk you at this point. You know, this kind of thing. It's a great service. Yes. Thank you. It's my honour to provide it. Yes, I'm I, loving it. I think you've also been um, reading a lot for the Comedy Women in Print. Yes. Site, you? And I know that's kind of coming to a head, so I just thought... Yes, know. thank you so much. My God, it was amazing. Um, the shortlist is going to be... No, no, the long list. The long list of 14 books is going to be announced on Monday. I read 90 books, Alex. It was so fabulous because it was a huge range like there's literary fiction I mean and there's you know fiction from so many places from Singapore from South Africa from the United States like it was such a joy to read them this year was much much better than last year in that we got many more entries and uh, I am so proud of the long list and it is so so representative of so many different ways that women are funny in fiction it was a pleasure reading the books and I really am so excited that the, the, the list will be published on Monday and people will get to read all 14 of them. And I'm not actually a judge. I'm only the chair. So I didn't get to choose the long list. But I suppose if there's a, if there's a tie or something, you know, on the shortlist or the, or the final. Cast your vote. Yes, exactly. But um, in a way it felt easier not being a judge because... I mean, I would have put about 40 books forward for the long list and that won't do. There were so many great books. So watch out for that and um, have a read of them. I think, I think people will get so much enjoyment and pleasure out of them. Thank you for asking about it, Alex. I just know it's something you've been so kind of deeply involved with and it's, it's just a, a brilliant thing to be involved with because it brings us back to the point that what we need is books that will make us think and books that will make us smile. Happy. Yeah. Thank you, Marion, for giving us so many of those yourself. Oh. And thank you so much for coming to visit us. Now, this is in lieu of, rather than replacing the fact that you will come to Cambridge, yeah. we hope. If of we can course make I will. In the future, oh. we should have been talking together on a stage we will be at some we point we will be alex we absolutely will cambridge people we will be there we Look. will come 
Thank you. Thanks. That was Marion Keys. I do hope you enjoyed it. I really did. If you'd like to hear any more of our podcasts and if you'd like to catch up on the Listening Festival, please do visit the Cambridge Literary Festival website and you'll see everything that we've been up to there. Now, the Cambridge Literary Festival is a small charity run by a tiny team of four people. And if you feel that you can help to keep us going, do visit our How to Donate page. And we look forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>